listening to this podcast, you probably already know how to do psychotherapy. But did you know that there are specific things you can do and say in the first session that will maximize the chances of a client coming back for the second session? Hi, I'm Dr. Bill Whitehead, and this is The Therapist Therapist, where we try to make therapists more successful. Denise Hoyt and I are co-authors of the book, The Psychotherapist Success Guide. Let's look at this issue right now. So Bill, we have talked about the setting up an office, decorating the office elements that we want to have in an office in a private practice situation. But I think one of, there's one very important part of an office that we haven't talked about yet, and that is the therapist or you. Right. You and how you react, especially in the first few sessions, is going to be paramount in determining both the nature of the relationship going forward and are they coming back for session two, which you certainly want. So that needs to be handled from the beginning of in your waiting room when you're meeting a brand new client. So tell me how you typically handle that. Uh, well, I would certainly in the waiting room say, hi, I'm Bill Whitehead or hi, I'm Dr. Whitehead and shake the hand and come on back. But then as I sat down, I had a standard line that for me was the demarcation between kind of the casual talk to let's get down to business. And it was simply, how might I be of help to you? Mm -hmm. Now, one exception to that is if they had filled out a biographical information form and had already given me a great deal of information, including what was the problem that was bringing them in, then I would make sure I would acknowledge that. Then my line would be, you know, I read your biographical information form and I really appreciate you taking the time to do that, but I want to hear it from you. How can mm -hmm. I be of help to you? Right. One thing I do, especially with couples that come in the room, is they're filling out a little bit different information for me. Um, we're usually going through a fairly structured interview, but I let them know that they're here today to interview me to make sure that I'm a good fit for them. And that if they determine that I'm not, that I'm happy to help them find the right person to take their case. And along those same lines, if they've been in therapy before, yeah, it's nice to ask, what did you like about that experience? What did you dislike? To find out a bit more about what they're expecting from the therapy experience and to stand on the shoulders of giants if you have the chance. Absolutely, absolutely. Talk to me about how you even present yourself in the room as far as how, how, do, you, how do you dress? Well, it's interesting because in different um, settings, I dress differently. Uh, I worked in a, a medical clinic for a period of time, and I actually wore a white coat in that period. That completely is a bad idea in most settings. Uh, in the first 15 years of my practice, I wore a full suit and tie because that was the way the culture uh, was working at that time. Mm -hmm. But about 15 years into it, I dropped a coat and tie and started dressing pretty much like this. Mm -hmm. Business casual, I guess I would call it. Okay. How about you? I would say I, I dress business casual or a little more formally, depending if it's I'm meeting a client for the first time or if I have a day that it's a repeat client. But I always tend to try to, to dress maybe a step above what my typical clientele might be expecting or who they are. Um, just because um, 
many times people coming in to therapy uh, to find who they aspire to be. Mm-hmm. And I find that as therapists, we're often role models for that. I think we forget frequently how powerful we are in that regard. Mm-hmm. How we relate, how we talk, how we dress uh, is likely to be scrutinized. Again, it's dressing for who they want to be, not necessarily who they are. Right. And of course, that depends upon whether you're dealing with uh, businessmen or whether you're dealing uh, with uh, teenagers. Your dress may vary according to those. uh, Absolutely. If you're a play therapist, you probably need to wear things you can get on the ground and get in the dirt with. You know, there's a very touchy subject. And that is the subject of touch. Pun intended there, right? Pun intended. So um, we would love to create this atmosphere that very much is like, oh, I remember, you know, my grandmother, she used to hug me, she used to kiss me, you know, we had the greatest rapport. But uh, especially in the days since Me Too, bad idea. And so how do you go about handling this touch? How do, you, how do you convey this warmth without touch? Yeah, I think it's very important to read your client into what they need in those situations. I think it is um, always questioning yourself about is that something that would be helpful or not. And I always ask for permission if that's the case. If I know a client has had a really tough session and, um, and I think it would be helpful to offer a hug, I'll ask, could you use a hug right now? Yeah. And, and most of the time, they're like, yes, please. <laughs> yes. And uh, so I think that it's cruel not to offer that at times, but it's also very, um, it's a dangerous place to go. Yes. It's a dangerous place to go, and I don't think you go there without some clinical acumen to back you up on really knowing your client well enough to how they would perceive something like that. Even in the waiting room with the handshake, I would not give the handshake if it wasn't clear that they were expecting it. They were kind of extending. And my policy was from time to time, uh, when somebody had a tough session, I would pat them on the back on the way out. Absolutely. But the hug, I didn't do until the last session for a a long-term client. And again, asking permission. Yeah. Would it be okay if I gave you a hug? And in the family therapy world that I come from, uh, there is a lot of touching involved in some of the modalities that we utilize. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because we might be anchoring, anchoring behaviors, we might be doing family sculpting and trying to anchor a, a, something. So it's very, it very much is going to, be, to depend on many di- different factors that I think time gives you that instinct to be able to identify. Yes. How did you handle writing notes. You know, some people say, oh, writing notes, it's kind of creating this distance again. It's like you're a subject of mine that I'm observing. And other people say, no, the people expect that. They want, they want to feel valued by those notes. Well, what was your habit? You know, um, writing notes is my least favorite part of therapy. Um, so my, I always have just a, a yellow legal pad and I don't write much on that pad during session, but maybe there was a salient uh, phrase that they used that I wanted to document or something to remember next time about therapy. And uh, sometimes I had a client say, what are you writing about me? 
and I would just hand them the pad and I'd be, here you go. You're very mm -hmm. welcome to read it. It's just reminding myself for next time some of the things that I wanted to document, you know, talk right. about. Making sure they don't see you as the interrogator, but that you are, in Correct. fact, the collaborator. Absolutely. I never took notes during the session. For some reason, I thought, well, this is going to create distance. I had a colleague say quite the opposite. They feel valued when you're taking the time to write it down. And it's like, wow, that, that's cool. Let me <laughs> write that down. But I just never did. Except I started doing it for first sessions after one terrible experience of having three new clients back to back in a day. And then uh, at the end of the day, not remembering who had said what. <laughs> so mm -hmm. that's when I learned, you know, session one, I'm going to make an exception. And, and it's probably a, a good notes. idea. Take a and few notes. And you really want to use it by the correct name the next time you see them as well. Therapists also really vary in how much self-disclosure they do in the course of a session. What are your thoughts about that? That is a really, um, that's a really interesting topic. And again, I think there is a lot that we need to learn about in therapy before we do much self-disclosure. But I also think that there are many clients who could benefit from self-disclosure as long as we're, as a therapist, we're not disclosing that to meet our own needs or to our own horn for some situation. That it's really just to maybe typify something or normalize something in life. Right. I had a client one time who said the reason she was coming to me and had quit her old therapist was because the therapist would go on and on about, well, see this face? I got this in Tahiti. <laughs> it was like, why do I care? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, so yes, you, could, you can cross that line and do too much self-disclosure. Absolutely. I also had a supervisor one time recommend that it's valuable to the therapeutic relationship if you can say, you know, I've had that problem too, and here's how I resolved it. But not to say, yeah, I used to fight with my wife all the time too. In fact, we're thinking about divorcing now. Yeah, that, you not, can't not talk about helpful. unresolved issues, but it's helpful to talk about resolved issues. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, there's a related kind of broader topic around this, which is, does your client want to see you as alpha are as beta or more properly omega. In other words, do they see you as a person that they're uh, expecting to get advice and direction from, that they're having problems with their own life and they just want to be told, how should I do things differently? Or do they see therapy as more of a collaboration, that you're being hired as a consultant because you have a little bit of knowledge that they don't have, but they want to be in charge of the therapy and, and provide the direction of treatment all the way through. How did you relate? Yes, well, that is, a, that is one where I think clinical intuition comes in, and I'm a very collaborative model of a therapist, typically, so I tend to kind of meet the client where they are, and you tend to get a feel if they would prefer to be more directive or if it's, um, you know, if, hey, just tell me what to do versus let me hear some stories about how other people handled it. So um, sometimes I use a tool in mm -hmm. therapy that there might be a little bit of a personality assessment that I'm doing that gives me a little bit of indicator about mm -hmm. how they per 
feel. But more directly, I think that you just how they talk and go through the day if you're asking questions and allowing them to ask some questions as well, giving them the room and the room to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, you do that. How do you handle that, Bill? You know, initially, I was like you wanting to be this kind of uh, omega therapist that was just there in a consulting role that uh, that I would give them certainly some information if they liked the information, but I would let them guide the treatment. And then I had one particular client one time who said, well, I'm this is my last session, you know, it's session three and you haven't told me what to do yet. <laughs> and I realized, wow, there's a big difference in clients. So mm-hmm. I like your idea of, of gauging it somehow, mm-hmm. figuring out what they need. You know, another way to do that is if you are kind of talking at some length about a topic and they're sort of patting their foot, looking at their watch, waiting for you to shut up so that they can go on with their self-disclosure and uh, self-assessment, then you need to change roles. Good to be flexible. It is. I don't know about you, but every single client has taught me something new. Absolutely. You know, there's also uh, a, a very specific issue about fee collection. This is a really tough thing for people in private practice, right? If you have been in a, in a group practice situation or agency situation, you probably never had this conversation nor learned how to have this conversation. When it's time to take collection from your patient for fees they owe you today for services, mm-hmm. it's going to feel strange to do it. Yes, because again, this atmosphere that you've just created of, gee, this is an intimate conversation and I'm helping you to open up and all of a sudden, this abrupt time's up. Where's my cash? Right. And uh, you, that's a that's a difficult transition. It is. And so I find that taking uh, that first session and training your client how the session ends is really important. And then I handle it just very simply and say, so I take payment by cash, check, or credit card. Which of those would you prefer to pay by today? And- very straightforward. And again, it's probably more uncomfortable for us than it is for them. Correct. They're used to going to doctor's offices and uh, as a part of that experience, they pay. And so it's probably not a big deal for them. It just is for us. Correct. But the other part of that is the time's up part. How do you manage that? I find it works much better if I'm not the one saying we have the time up. So I tend to uh, make sure that I have a, several clocks in the room that I refer to, or I also have um, one therapy appointment. It actually will ding to let me know when the time ends. So I use that, and I either will say, well, we just heard a ding. That means our session time is wrapping up here, so let's finish up. Or I'll say the clock's telling me that it's time to begin to end our session. Offloading the responsibility. I want to offload the responsibility so it doesn't seem quite as harsh. (laughs) Great idea. So there's another situation that can be a little bit awkward, and that's when you have the chronic rescheduler, the the client who, though you have a 24-hour cancellation policy, 25 or 35 hours ahead of time, they cancel uh, next week. How do you handle that? Yeah. First of all, I cover that usually during the first session to make sure they know what my policy is. And the first time it happens, I usually give them a buy. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, okay. But um, typically I charge a late cancel fee. Or mm-hmm. if I have someone who is a chronic late scheduler, I have taken that person be, uh, in the future and said, here's what we're going to do. 
I'm not going to schedule you for the next session, but you're going to call me. And that day that you want to have an appointment, if I have an opening, I will be happy to slide you in and fit you in. But because usually due to illness, they just didn't feel well enough that day to get out of the house. So let's avoid that. You tell me when you're okay and we'll figure out how to work that in today. That's a great idea. You know, we assume that people, we have these regimented lives with these uh, calendars and schedules and not everybody functions that way. They Some don't. people are very ad hoc and so you're accommodating that without impacting your bottom line, which is great. Correct. Yeah, good idea. Um, you said you have a cancellation policy do you, what's the fee for that? And, and do you always impose that or do you accept excuses? I accept excuses, especially if I know the client fairly well. But the, the biggest part of that is I keep that cancellation fee. I don't charge the full fee for that. Number one, I would prefer that the client know they have a little leeway if they want to come back. And I find if you charge the full fee, sometimes people are like, I'm just gonna be done with therapy. You know, because mm -hmm. maybe the reason they didn't come was they didn't have the money that day, possibly. Right. Um, but typically I give them a call if they had no showed, you know, what's going on. But I just charge a flat rate fee. And I also have the, I also let them know that if I'm called ahead of time and I know that and I can fill that slot with someone else, then I'm not going to charge you for that. So it's to your benefit to let me know as early as possible mm -hmm. that you're not coming. You know, another issue that's kind of related to that is uh, reminders. And sometimes I've had clients say, well, I didn't get the reminder call. And uh, oftentimes I found, well, that just was a little white lie that they were trying to get out of paying the no-show fee. So I had a policy that said the reminders are optional. The reminders are a courtesy. But even if you don't get the reminder call, you're expected to show up because I didn't want to have the distance created by now you're telling a little white lie to me. What's next in terms of disruptions to our relationship Absolutely. and the honesty there? Absolutely. Um, vacations. Mm. That's another big topic. Well, I have a saying about vacations. In private practice, you pay double. Okay. <laughs> Tell and me what, what you mean. <laughs> what I mean by that is you are taking a vacation and you are spending money on vacation. Um, and in private practice, you don't get a paid vacation. In fact, there will be no income coming in during that time that you are on vacation. So be very judicious about when you take vacation in private practice. Right. So that means taking vacations when your schedule is already at a lull, probably in August or July, Correct. because that's when other people are taking their vacations. You know, a little trick I used to do uh, was I would never take two weeks off in a row. I don't want people to learn that, uh, oh, you know, I'm in this habit now where I don't go to therapy on Wednesday, so I'm just going to keep going. Mm -hmm. So I would only take one week off and I would do it from Wednesday to Wednesday if possible. That way I could pack as many people as possible into the first part of the week and as many people as possible into the last part of the week on that second week and there was less of a disruption to my cash flow yeah that's a good way to handle that you know there, there's one silver lining to the vacation thing which is you're going to be losing so much money by not having an income stream for those uh that week or two 
go ahead and get the deluxe room. <laughs> it's no big deal. It's like when take, you have vacation, take advantage of it, right? Take advantage of it, absolutely. Yeah. The same thing comes in with conferences too. So going to a conference, you're going to be paying for the conference and you're going to be paying not having any income. So in private practice, if you came from a group practice, they may have had some concessions for you to, to take training or if you were in an agency situation, they may have paid for a lot of that for you. So just recognize that's a that's another expense. Yeah, yeah. So we've talked now about how the most important part of the therapy office ourselves should uh, should dress, should relate. But we need to talk about a less in interesting topic, which is paperwork. Mm. And paperwork involves how to get ready legally for therapy. And it also involves the paperwork that we provide for our patients in various situations. So let's talk about that next time. Absolutely. This podcast was brought to you by Therapy Appointment, a practice management system designed especially for psychotherapists. Therapy Appointment provides online scheduling, billing, insurance, charting, appointment reminders, teletherapy, HIPAA-compliant communication, and much more. Therapy appointment. You provide the therapy, we provide the rest. More info at www.therapyappointment.com. If you have a suggestion for a future episode of this podcast, please email me at bill at therapyappointment.com. Thanks for listening. See you again next week.